Morning, Jamie. One of the um, lost, I think, the scriptures of who Jesus is, is has to do with strength. I don't think we often think of Jesus as strong, which is, which is interesting because as I put Roosevelt to bed, sometimes we sing the children's book, Jesus Loves Me, and, and everybody, or most people know the start of that song is that Jesus loves me, this I know. For Rosie could sing it for me, but she'd just get too shy up here. She'd say she'd do it, and I'd be lost. Uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me full. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. I resisted doing the hand motions, the, the weak and strong. Um, but strength is often one of those categories it seems like we lose for Jesus. I think part of it has to do with most of us have this memorization of sort of the Christmas stuff, which is like meek and mild and these sorts of things. But what captures Jesus, I think, as an adult and at certain times in his teaching and his life is actually strength. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there's been plenty of news stories in the past 10 years about how the geeks have won and that that's sort of the new way in which the world will run. And so strength even tends to trend lower than it used to be. And there's this crisis you'll read in even the New York Times, which is not the place you'd expect to read this, of sort of raising boys and asking, how do you teach boys to be strong in a world which doesn't really quite want them strong? Now, this is bad news for me because I'm not geeky enough to have one with the geeks nor strong enough to one with the strong. Um, but that's sort of the ways in which the world has sort of changed is that, is that for us to know that Jesus is strong means something. In the first century world, if you had no strong one among you, it would have been bad news. It would have been easy to take from you. It would have been easy to take advantage of you. It would have been easy to sort of throw off the rule of law. Now, now in the first century sort of Greco-Roman world, there are some protections, but there's nothing like the modern police state. There's nothing where, like, you can call somebody and though you are weak, they will be strong on your behalf. And so this passage for us today, I think, calls to something of the strength of who Jesus is. John the Baptist, at the beginning of his ministry, said, one is coming after me, and he's, he's the powerful one, is the phrase he uses, or the strong one. Now, one of the things that we've been doing with this series is sort of going through the story of Mark or looking for the ways at which Mark discloses Jesus to us. And so the first, and this is, I've, I've slowly come to realize and accept, is a pattern for Defiance Church, I think, is that every new year we'll start and we'll, we'll sort of walk with the gospel from the beginning of the new year till Easter, That'll vary between three and five months of sort of spending time in a gospel. But I think it's good for us to go back to where Jesus is active in teaching and sharing. And so this year we're doing Mark. We'll do Luke or John next year probably. But but to sit with a gospel and to learn from it, how is it disclosing Jesus' identity to us? And so in week one we talked about in the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there's this beginning, there's this new creation thing that seems to be happening with who Jesus is. And John the Baptist calls out these prophecies from long ago that Jesus stands in continuation with something God has done. I think this is one of the unique parts about Christianity is that it doesn't just have a charismatic leader who shows up on the stage and is somehow better than all the other ones that came before him, but he stands in a continued sort of stream. 
And then it moves toward this, this one being baptized, hearing a voice from heaven that this is the one whom I love and whom I am well pleased, and then being cast out into the desert where the demons and the wild animals reside. It's a fast start to the book of Mark. And we, we talked about how each one of those things sort of disclosed to us a bit of who the character of Jesus is. The next week, we looked at his healings, his first healings and confrontations with demons and sort of how he stands as one who restores people to the goodness of creation. Last week, this is a, this is a Jesus gets in a, a question and answer period with the scribes and the Pharisees. They come and ask questions, and he answers them. Why do they eat with sinners? Why do they eat on the Sabbath? Or why are they out in grain fields on the Sabbath? Uh, why do you heal on the Sabbath? He has this question and answer, period. And, and I think Jesus does pretty well, and I think most people think he does pretty well. But the people asking the questions at the end of this Q&A say, okay, it's time to kill him. It's about to be the worst result of a Q&A period you could ever have is that, is that, okay, now it's time to kill this guy. But that's where chapter three sort of, or that five questions that make up chapter two and the beginning of chapter three sort of end is that Jesus is one who these people have come to get clarity on who he is. And once they've gained that clarity, they realize we can't have this guy around anymore. It's time to sort of squash him, to put his, himself out. And so it discloses to us as one who's Jesus and those ones who eats with tax collectors and sinners. We talked about how holiness, when you're a holy person, and this is the hard part about it, when you're a holy, mature person, that's actually more contagious than sin and pollution that comes with it. It's a hard truth for us is that as we grow in holiness, it enables us to go into darker and harder places, not to stay away from them. That holiness is the light that disinfects. And so to go as a holy person into places of, of tax collectors and sinners, of those who seem the furthest from God, if you are confident and secure in your holiness, is actually a mission to shine light there. And through that light, it actually becomes more contagious. Christians, we often live with the idea that sin is the contagious thing. Bad company is the problem. Bad company is the problem, but if you grow in stature and in holiness, it's not the same problem it used to be. You're actually able to shine something in there. But this Sunday's teaching that Jamie read for us talks of this conflict that Jesus has entered into when he went out into the desert. That Jesus went out in to the place where the demons reside and contended with them and comes out not only alive, but able to, to sort of cast out demons. Now, this story from the book of Mark, and this is Mark's first use of it, but he'll use it a couple times, is sort of like a sandwich, um, which is not, I need to, that's like, I always use those examples and I start with the worst way to say it because people are like, it's nothing like a sandwich. Why would you say that? Um, the way in which Mark builds the story is like, it is, has like a sandwich sort of character to it in that the first, in the beginning, you have the crowds, and then you have the crowds at the end. On the middle of the two crowds things, you have his family who's coming to look for him and his teaching about the family and, and finally meeting with his family. Then you have the scribes and the Pharisees, and the scribes and the Pharisees at the end of, of his teaching on the strong one. In the middle, the meat of the sandwich... Uh, per se, which is a 
now I'm realizing I should have just knocked this one off, um, is, is, the, uh, is the story about the, the binding of the strong man, the story about what happens with Satan. And so if you look at a story that way, and particularly in Hebrew or Greek literature, it's, it's the, the middle point is the main point. Now, if you took college comp 150, they normally tell you, end with your strongest point. That's how we write essays. But in this type of narrative structure, the middle point is sort of the point that everything else sort of flows around. And so we'll start with, with sort of just walking through this passage. But the passage starts with the crowds are coming to surround him. And the disciples, they can't even eat at this point. There's so many crowds. And crowds at this moment are on Jesus' side to some degree. And what happens is his family comes and they say, he's out of his mind. Jesus is outside of himself is how the Greek would really read, is that he's lost it is what his family says. But his family at this moment can't really get to him. And so what happens is the scribes and the Pharisees sort of, sort of ask a question or they make an accusation of Jesus at this moment. They said to him, he is possessed by Bezalbum, by the prince of demons, is how he is driving out demons. Essentially what they're saying is that Jesus is in cahoots with the devil, and that's why he's able to command demons. And so this will attract people to him, but they should know that he's a demon himself. If you've read a lot of, like, um, espionage novels, this is a classic sort of, like, twist in the espionage novels. The person is working both sides to really get somewhere. Essentially, their accusation is he's working both sides of this equation, but you don't trust the demon's side. You don't follow that. Now, in Judaism at this time, if you notice, if you read the Old Testament sort of all the way through, there's not a lot of talk about Satan and demons and the devil. There's a couple reasons, I think, for that, but it's generally not a large topic talked about in the Old Testament. And then there's this intertestamental period, which we don't have in our Bibles, but Jewish writings in between Malachi and when Jesus comes, where this thinking is really expanded and brought to life which is that we live in sort of two-realmed universe. We almost live in a one-realmed universe, and that realm is the realm that is governed by darkness. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who writes the later half of the New Testament, really uses a lot of this logic when he says that, that Satan is sort of the prince of this world, that the darkness is prince of the world. You can see it in the Gospel of John, too, where the Gospel of John talks about how that their light came into darkness. Light comes into dark places in Jesus. That this world is somehow bound to these patterns. Now, the, the, the reading from Isaiah that Don read for us asked, who can go and take from, from the strong people? And, and it says that Jesus, or that God is one who takes captives from those who are strong. It's hard for me to believe this, not to believe this, but to, to, but to move my mind into this sort of relational space is that what the, the New Testament teaches us and what the Old Testament uh, alludes to is that the world is actually at God's odds with God's purposes. The world stands apart from God. The world has its own sort of um, uh, ruler, and that ruler is not God as we see it. 
that this realm is sort of, and Jesus in this passage even will say in response that there's this dominion, he uses dominion language, or um, the same Greek word that he uses for the kingdom of God is what Satan sort of has. That this is sort of the world we live in. And, and so often we look at creation and we look at the goodness of living in Glenwood Springs and we lose sight of the fact that the world, since the fall, is a place that is, is under the power of something else that is not God. I don't know. I lose sight of it a lot, but all I need to do is read a newspaper, um, uh, hang out at, at the bus stations, um, go to the extended table that we're doing this week to see that that's still true. But I can build a sheltered sort of walled life where I don't see those things. So this brings us to the, to the, the first point is that, that Jesus says to them, and if you, you might know this from Abraham Lincoln more than you know it from Jesus, is that a house divided cannot stand, which is what he says about the Confederacy and the Union. Nerd knowledge. I majored in U.S. history. I have to use it every now and then to you know, justify that expense. Um, but Lincoln's actually quoting Jesus at that moment, who says that, that if Satan is driving out Satan, that means his house is in disorder and disarray. And if that were the case, it would collapse on itself. So the first sort of parable, and there's two parables here, which is why you have to slow down the way you read Scripture. If you read this fast, it sounds like one parable. But the, but the first parable is about how, well, that's obviously not the case. Because who would align themselves against each other? Because that would make the house collapse. House wouldn't be able to stand anymore. It's sort of Jesus' answer to this. And what he's saying there, too, is, is sort of that these people who make this accusation can see in his ministry that this house is collapsing, that something is happening to Satan's kingdom. Through his exorcisms, through his casting out of demons, something is changing in the world. And the second parable goes to the other point, which is that Jesus is the strong one who's broken into the house of someone else and bound him and so that he can take plunder from it. Jesus is the stronger one in that instance. Now, this for me and for most of us should be a little hard because Jesus is setting himself up as somebody who breaks and enters and steals in this teaching. But if we walk back to what I said about how people are beginning to understand the universe in the first century, this makes sense. If the world is at odds with God, if there's another prince of this place that people are following, if this is the way in which the world runs in violence and destruction and, and get bigger and take, and if the world is distorted and falling upon itself, God doesn't come and just like open the door, take some things out. If something is going to change, Jesus is saying, it actually takes a stronger one to go into the house to bind the, the one who is the prince of this place so that they can plunder the house. This is, a, this is a point we talk about often, but Christianity is one of these big help comes from the outside. New Age religion, uh, other religions, not all of them, many of them help comes from the inside, right? You think through it, you meditate, you balance yourself, you become something better, you strive harder. One of the elementary points of sort of Christianity and Judaism before it is that if this is going to get better, 
it's not going to be because of us. Something is going to have to come in from the outside to change it. One of my favorite descriptions of the gospel is that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. But going back to strength, this is where Jesus becomes the strong one, that this strength that we are weak, but he is strong. By ourselves, we don't have the capability to bind the one who distorts God's creation. By ourselves, we cannot restore the world to its proper place. But when God himself sort of shows up on the scene, God, the one who is stronger than the other one, he is able to bind that power. And his kingdom has come to an end. In fact, no one can enter this house without first tying him up. And and what he brings out is plunder, which goes back to this phrase that Don, Don read for us from the book of Isaiah, is he brings out captives. That's, in a way, us. When Jesus comes into this house, what he brings out is those who are captive to something. Now, there, there's this way in our world where we try to think of our, our captivity to, to this thing as free choice. You know, I choose to be a slave to, to sort of um, uh, addiction, whether that be the internet or, or alcohol. I choose to sort of um, spend my money and my time continually trying to, to sort of portray some perfection. I choose to, to sort of be a part of making my body perfect for other people. That's all my choice, right? And what I think this passage is saying for us is that we are actually captive to something that we don't even realize. We exist as captive. And for us to come out of that place to see the light of the day, we need to be plunder of the one who is stronger, who takes from that house. The next scene, Jesus, so that was the, the meat of the passage. Now we're moving back out of, of sort of the sandwich, which is great now that I thought of that. Um, sounds even better when you say it out loud in front of people. Um, Jesus talks about what sort of is the unforgivable sin, which as I was reading about this passage is apparently what everybody wants to know about. I, I was like, that is not that exciting. Um, and there's this classic sort of preacher's thing that says, if you're worried about having committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't committed it. Like, if you're worried about, like, well, I don't know if I've done this thing which isn't forgivable, then you're fine. And really, this, this, um, this is where the scribes enter back in. They were the ones who made the accusation that he's in, in with uh, Bezalbub, which is this, this sort of king of the area. And they are the ones he addresses now. And he says, he didn't even say that they're committing it, that they're in danger of committing this unforgivable sin. And really what the unforgivable sin is, if you follow the passage close enough here in Mark, is to say that the good works that God is doing in restoring creation are actually due through an agent of darkness. God's restoration, God's goodness, God's release of captives is actually the work of Satan. It's not hard to see how that's an unforgivable sin because you couldn't accept that as we had the phrase we used last week, that Christ is the doctor of our souls. You couldn't accept that God is the one who's healing you and setting you free. It's almost unforgivable in and of itself because you would never be able to see the light of what God is doing. 
all the good things you would see coming from God and Jesus, you would chalk up to Satan, and that would make it so you couldn't even accept or know the truth of what's happening. Which is why I thought the unforgivable sin wasn't that interesting. It was like, why do people get so worked up about that part of it? And it says after that, he, he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Jesus' family shows back up, and they're standing outside, and they sent someone to call him in, and a crowd was sitting, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are here. Jesus asked then, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, the crowd, the people listening to him. Right before this, he's also named sort of 12 disciples. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. This passage, I think, fits into the scope of, of, of the sandwich or what the story is here in Mark 3, in that people, when you awaken, and this is one of, I think, the biggest points of, of today's sermon, is that for us to awaken to what God is doing in the world, to see that much of what happens might be captive to darkness, to something else, and that Jesus is the one who binds that so that we can be released and will bind it fully in the end, in the, in the fullness of time, and when he returns, is going to make you weird. People, and this is, and I don't know if this has happened in your life, but when I was in college and it, it came out when I was a Christian to various people, first it would be a Q&A. Do you really believe this? What do you, I mean, they're, they're very simple ones today. They're not that interesting. It's like, what do you believe about homosexuality? What do you believe about abortion? Who'd you vote for? Which is like, those capture my Christianity so well, I'm glad you asked. Um, uh, that's not the best way to, but you know, you'd answer those questions and then they'd go away, right? And then they'd come back and they wouldn't have questions anymore. They have accusations, it's a pattern, and, it, and you don't even have to just view this in the Christian sense. I think it's a pattern that happens whenever you set yourself at odds with something that's dominant in the world. People will first ask you questions. Like, um, uh, there's a writer I know who gave up watching the NFL. Why? Um, well, you know, I just didn't think it was good for me anymore, and I feel bad for the players, and it seems like they're all going to die from CTE. Okay, well then, a couple more questions. And then what happens is the next week when everybody comes back, they just make fun of them. Oh, you know, Alan, he doesn't watch the NFL anymore because he's weak. Oh, you know, Alan, he doesn't watch the NFL anymore because poor millionaires, right? Like, the second they come back is, and that's not a point on whether you should watch the NFL or not. The point is, is that we sort of do that. And so the question for us here as Defiance Church is people who, who sort of get this news. And we talked about how the gospels, particularly the gospel of Mark, always the gospel comes to us as news before it's advice, the gospel's first news of what God has done in Jesus before its advice on what you should do. But as we awaken ourselves to that news, what are people going to say about us? Can we stand when this comes? And so part of the reason why the family plays a prominent role here, and this I believe is true, although I've had good luck with my family, is if you commit yourself to doing something radically odd for God, the people most likely to stop you are your family. For instance, um, my twin brother moved into a poor part of San Francisco and was spending night with sort of the homeless before he got married. 
The number one person who didn't want my mom or my brother to spend nights on the street with the homeless was my mom. Now, that's not to say that my mom was wrong. My mom's a Christian woman too. But when you start to make decisions based off of what we know is true about who God is and what he might ask from us, the people who care about us the most are often the people who will get in the way. Mark's community, the people reading the Gospel of Mark, know this closer than we do. Because to say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God in the first century, and if you're a Jew or a Gentile, is to say something to the rest of family where they go, and the accusation that starts this with Jesus, you're out of your mind. The crucified Nazarene cannot be God, cannot be the Messiah, and even though you say he's risen again, that is nuts. And in the first century, this would get you moved out of your house, which is more likely where you also worked. This is, this is more than a family job. The house is the site of the work, of what you do. Your alienation would move up a notch. And so what this sort of ending with the family here is it tells us that there are people around us who will resist us becoming awake to what God has done in binding the strong man. The last thing I think, um, yeah, the last thing I think which is important to remember today is that this is where God's weakness is stronger than death. Paul will use this phrase, is that the weakness of God is stronger than what we are. The reason why I bring up that is that Jesus, in his strength, goes to the cross. You know, we have some people who are fans of the Chronicles of Narnia and that the lion Aslan sort of plays the Christ or is the Christ figure in the stories. And what happens is he sort of lays himself on, on the law of this land and offers his life in exchange for somebody else who had broken it. And the woman, the character who sort of plays Satan at this, is so excited. It's almost like um, an orgy party that they have that this one, this lion who is strong, has come and laid himself down to be killed on behalf of the other one. I mean, they are excited about this. And this, this, I tell this story from the Chronicles of Narnia because this is how the early church would have understood what Jesus did is that we've all not just been captive to this dark power, we've made ourselves captive to it. It's what we've attended to. And what Christ does is he comes in our place, lays himself down on that law, and breaks it. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the tablets actually sort of break open. And what the lion says to one of the kids after is that, is that there's a deeper truth that when somebody innocent offers themselves up for one who has done something wrong, that death itself would start to roll back. Jesus in the cross commits the sort of final act of binding evil. And evil doesn't realize it yet. Thinks it's one. And what happens in the resurrection is the breaking forth of all the things that have bound us. It's there we become freedom from what we've been captive to. This, this passage, as many passages in the Gospel of Mark, are essentially just the Gospel rehearsed in a smaller form. This world is at odds. 
And what it takes is something to come from the outside to bind that which binds us so that Christ can take us as his plunder into the new life and the new creation he has for us. Let us pray.